You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. We've seen over the last couple of weeks Jesus continuing to instruct his disciples about life after he departs from them. And we saw a couple of weeks ago where the disciples are going to have to learn how to handle uh, the hatred of the world that as Jesus has called his disciples to love, to be obedient, that they're going to experience joy through that love and obedience, that there's going to be hatred in response from the world. And at times that hatred may feel extreme uh, with it even costing some their life, but he challenges his followers to endure that hatred rather than fall away because of it. And so he tells us at the beginning, beginning of chapter 16, I've told you all this stuff about hatred and persecution and trouble that's going to come because when it comes, I don't want you to fall away because of it. I want you to be anticipating it. I want you to be prepared for it. I want you to endure it. And then last week we saw just the, the sorrow that the disciples were feeling about the fact that Jesus was departing and leaving them. And we said that <clears throat> oftentimes in the midst of our sorrows, what we don't realize is that God is working advantage into our life. And so last week we saw that Jesus reminds us that when sorrow comes, there is always something advantageous happening in the midst of it, which encourages us to look for how Jesus is at work and trust that he will be effective because of the Holy Spirit. And so in the midst of their sorrow about Jesus leaving, Jesus is like, no, 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 you don't understand. This is for your advantage. This is good for you because as I leave, the Holy Spirit's going to come. Right, And so we can see advantages in the midst of our sorrow if we look with the proper perspective. And so we talked about asking the right questions when sorrow comes, uh, focusing on the right things, looking for how Jesus is working in the midst of our sorrow, to anticipate possible advantages when sorrow comes, that what is causing sorrow in our life is also creating some type of advantage that God's going to perform in us. And then we also talked about accepting the need for delayed answers when sorrow comes, that sometimes we're not given all the information. And Jesus tells them, I'm not going to be able to tell you everything right now. It's not something that you can bear fully. And so Jesus is even strategic in the truth that he communicates to us. And so from an application standpoint, um, we talked about identifying the people in our life that we will turn to when sorrow strikes, um, that they can help us with our perspective when our perspective is maybe off. And then last week, we even said that application-wise, we want to set plans in our week that require the supernatural help of the Holy Spirit, right? That as we plan out the course of this week, we want to plan for things in our life that will require the Holy Spirit to help us through those things. And so hopefully you were able to, to think through some of that last week. That brings us now to the middle of chapter 16, where Jesus continues his discussion about the disciples handling some of the sorrow that they are feeling about his departure. It says in verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you were asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. 
When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her, ho- because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name. I I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Our summary sentence for today, Jesus promises that joy rooted in his return can be found even in the midst of sorrow, is exempt from being stolen by the circumstances of this world, and can be increased to the fullest through answered prayer. Jesus promises that joy, the type of joy that he talks about this passage, it's rooted in his return. And when we're experiencing that kind of joy, we can find joy in the midst of sorrow. Our joy can't be stolen by the circumstances of this world, and it can be increased to the fullest through answered prayer. For our kids, the promise that Jesus is coming again should be our greatest joy. Lots of discussions here about joy in this passage as Jesus begins to wrap up some of his teaching prior to going to the cross. He wants his disciples to understand that there is a joy possible that, that really can't be attacked. It can't be stolen from us. If our joy is properly placed, it's a joy that will endure, right? And it's a joy that can continue to increase to the fullest, Jesus says, as we pray intentionally and see promises and, and responses to those prayers uh, in our life. And so uh, we want to see how that joy today, rooted in his return, can be understood by us through this text. All right, so we're going to jump right in and see exactly what Jesus has to say to us um, this morning through the instruction that he left with his disciples. Number one, we want to remember that sorrow is temporary. We want to remember that sorrow is temporary. For our kids, bad times will happen to us as Christians, but they won't last forever. That's, That's something that we as parents and even members of this church need to make sure that we faithfully communicate to those that are growing up in our church. Much like Jesus is communicating with his younger, maturing disciples, hey, bad times are coming. I want to prepare you for that so that when they come, you don't fall away. We too, as parents and as members of this church, need to make sure that our youth and our kids understand that bad times are going to happen when you, when you follow Christ. That, that things are going to happen that you didn't choose, that you don't desire to happen, that Jesus is going to allow into our life. Trials and difficulties, they're going to be used in the refining process, right? And we need our kids to know that because they need to not fall away too when those things happen down the road. They need to be prepared, much like the disciples had to be prepared, 
right? And so bad times will happen to us as Christians, but they won't last forever. They're temporary. They're temporary. In this discussion here, Jesus is essentially saying that seasons of sorrow are almost certain to happen, and at times they may feel or may appear final. He talks about this this sorrow, and he even talks about the world rejoicing about it. He tells them, you're going to weep, you're going to lament, and the world is going to rejoice over it. You will be sorrowful. So in the midst of this discussion about a little while, a little while, a little while, and we'll talk about what that means here in a minute, he basically assures them again, if he hasn't already done so prior to this, he assures them one more time that sorrow is coming to their life. They are going to experience difficulty, that it's temporary, but that it is coming. And, and at times it may feel so pressing that it feels almost final as we see the world rejoicing around us about our sorrow. Now, he's particularly talking about the coming crucifixion, right? So the whole idea here is that Jesus is about to go to the cross and while the disciples will be lamenting and sorrowful and crying and hiding and, and wondering what's next, the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the Jews are going to be rejoicing over this, right? The same event, same circumstances, but two different reactions, right? The crucifixion being perceived and understood completely differently. One group cheering, excited, right? Seeing their plans come to fruition to seemingly get rid of Jesus. This other group that's been following Jesus, devastated by this, right? Both groups of people seeing this whole situation play out completely differently. What's encouraging, right, is that Jesus says it's going to turn and it's going to change quickly. After a little while, your sorrow is going to turn into joy, it's going to flip, right? And we've talked about this when we looked at the return of Jesus, how when Jesus comes back, injustice is happening, people are being oppressed, and when Jesus shows up, those tables are turned, right? Things, things change very quickly where now those that have been oppressed are being rescued. The oppressor is now being judged, right? And so it's an encouragement to us that, that things can change very quickly, that circumstances can be playing out and the world's going to react one way, the Christ, the Christ follower is going to react a completely different way, one in joy, one in sorrow, but those tables are going to turn quickly, right? When a couple of years ago, Adam McLeod and I had the chance to go to the national championship game, right? Like one in a million chance where both of our teams make the national championship game and we have free tickets to go and so we're in the stadium, and, and we're just relishing in the moment of, of what we're enjoying here. Like, it's just, it's just kind of magical, unbelievable. How can we be here when we know other people have had to pay thousands upon thousands of dollars to be here, right? Um, and I think our relationship is such where we were not going to rub it into each other when our team was winning the game. But we have these other people around us that we could celebrate with, all right? So when Alabama's doing something good, Adam McLeod's like high-fiving these Alabama fans, and I'm, you know, I'm frustrated, and I'm looking at my Georgia fans over here. We didn't know anybody around us, but we're celebrating with people based on the shirts that they're wearing, right? And, and at halftime, I mean, it seemingly looks like Georgia's going to win the game, right? And so all the Georgia fans are excited. Adam's just kind of hanging out, and I'm like, you want to go get souvenirs? You want to go buy the program? You want to get all the stuff that we can remember this game by? And Adam's like, no, not really. Like, 
because this team's losing, right? And then the game starts to play out in the second half, and Alabama starts to take the lead and is winning the game, and um, the, the table's turned, right? And then they go into overtime. And again, it looks like Georgia's going to win the game, and so me and all my fellow Georgia fans are excited and, and whatnot, and then the tables turn very quickly once again. And, and it was just it was weird to be in that setting where the person that I'm closest to we're reacting completely differently to how this thing's playing out. And on the final play of the game, when Alabama wins, right, I'm just kind of slumped down in my seat, and Adam's just, yeah, 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 right? Same circumstance, same event, two completely different reactions, right? And those tables turning very quickly. That's the picture that Jesus gives us here, right? The same event happening before these people, the crucifixion of Christ, this sorrow that's setting in for the disciples, it's joyful for the world, right? And he says, it's going to last for a little while and then it's going to turn and your sorrow is going to turn into joy. So these seasons of sorrow, they're certain. And at times they're going to feel final. At times they may be really pressing in on us to where we're not sure if we're going to come out of it. But number two, seasons of joy to follow are guaranteed. Seasons of joy to follow, they're guaranteed by Jesus, So he doesn't try to hide the fact that bad times are coming. He doesn't try to to withhold that from the disciples. He says, no, you've got to understand sorrow is coming your way. And he says, I'm telling you this because I don't want you to fall away. Like when this happens, I don't want you to be shocked. I don't want you to be mad. I don't want you to be confused. I want you to, to say, you know what? Christ's words are being fulfilled. He says, I don't want you to fall away. I want you to endure. I want you to persevere. And I want you to also take comfort in the fact that we're talking about a little while. We're talking about a little while, that seasons of joy are going to follow. They are guaranteed. He guarantees us, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Right, there's bad news and good news mixed there, right? Like we would love to just read it and it say, you're gonna be joyful, right? But it tells us we're gonna be sorrowful at times, that living in a world that is still tainted by sin is going to cause sorrow in our life. There will be things that happen and occur because of sin, and we will have to endure that. Sorrow will come our way. Persecution may come from the world, and it may come our way. But that sorrow will turn into joy. So seasons of sorrow are almost certain, but seasons of joy are definitely guaranteed to follow. Remember that sorrow is temporary. Number two, persevere in sorrow because it is forgettable persevere in sorrow because it is forgettable. Number one here, the sorrow we experience is only for a little while. He says, verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. What what time frame is he describing there? Most commentators would agree that he is describing that in a little while, we're gonna be separated, right? We've said that at this point in the narrative, We're just hours away from Jesus being arrested and ending up on the cross. So in a little while, you're not going to see me anymore. We're going to be separated. But then again, in a little while, you're going to see me once again, right? And that's a a nod to what's going to happen with the resurrection. Now, they they forget that, right? Like they don't seem to be anticipating the resurrection when it occurs. They're kind of cowering in fear. They're sad. They're distressed. They're sorrowful, right? But Jesus is telling them here prior to it, hey, in a little while, we're not going to be together anymore. 
And then in a little while longer, we will be back together again, right? That, that you're going to be sorrowful and then you're going to be joyful is what he's talking about. The time he's separated from them during his crucifixion and death is only a little while. The time he's separated from us. So in the context, I think he's specifically talking about crucifixion, resurrection. But we can take this and apply it to what we are experiencing today as well. And that's him not being with us and us anxiously waiting for him to come back. So the time Jesus is separated from us during his ascension and reign, that's only a little while too. Now, it's certainly longer than what they endured with the crucifixion and then three days later, the resurrection, right? But in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37, similar language is used to talk about Jesus's return. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37, it says, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. So scripture even paints this picture that the time between Jesus's ascension, which was over 2,000 years ago, to the time that he comes back really should be understood as a little while. Now, how many Christians have come and gone and died in between those two events, right? So many, right? Paul hoped that, that he would see it in his own lifetime. But in, in, in the grand scheme of eternity, we would certainly understand the last 2,000 years to be minuscule and small and a little while in regards to the rest of time, right? The time that Jesus separated from them during his crucifixion, death, resurrection, just a little while. The time that Jesus is separated from us during his ascension and reign is only a little while too, according to scripture. And a little while feels different based on what you're experiencing, right? When you're doing something fun and exciting, it seems short, right? When you're sitting in the, the, the doctor's office or the dentist chair or uh, in high school, right? Things seem to take forever to get through. I remember the... The years between middle school and high school felt like about 30 years, right? And now I look back and like decades just fly right now, right? Because I'm in the season of life right now where your whole life you're like waiting to get to this point, right? Like I can't wait to get out of high school so I can get married, get a job, have kids. And, and now that you're living it, it's like, man, I can't slow it down, right? What, what you feel about your experience oftentimes determines whether a little, a little while feels like a long period of time uh, or a short period of time. Now, for us... As Christians, while we don't experience, again, like we said, that extreme persecution, life can be hard at times because of living in an environment where sin is still tainting things, taints our relationships, makes the things that we do difficult, right? And so a little while feels maybe longer as we wait for Jesus to come back. But the assurance to us is sorrow's temporary and that it lasts for a little while. Number two, the joy we experience supersedes the sorrow endured. That's the other piece of encouragement here. Not only is the sorrow that we get in this life temporary, not only does it last for a little while, what is to come will supersede all the sorrowful experience. And he uses childbirth to illustrate this. So back in John chapter 16, you'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Right? I've heard it said before that if a woman could remember it, she might would never have another baby, right? But, but God designed it to where even in the midst of 
that, that outcome of sin in the garden where woman will now, will now have to bear children in pain, God still designed it in such a way where the joy of the child, right, it, it, it supersedes the anguish and the buildup that took place all before that, right? This illustration resonates with me um, as the father of, of four children um, that, are, that are living and, and the different experiences that we had in each one of those pregnancies. When, when we had AJ, um, when we got pregnant with AJ, there was excitement and, and, and the thrill of knowing that we're pregnant for the very first time. Um, it was early on in the ultrasound uh, stage where they identified some issues with his kidneys, and, and we weren't really sure what all that meant. There was a lot of possibilities that we needed to expect based on what they had discovered. And so honestly, it kind of, it kind of turned that rest of the pregnancy journey into um, times of happiness, but also times of, of anxiousness, right? Where, where, we would, where, where a family would maybe normally just be thinking and anticipating the birth of their child. There was also this part of us where we're thinking, what if AJ's not okay? Um, what, what if physically he's going to have to have accommodations that, that we're not prepared for? And then the joy of holding him and then the joy of knowing that things were okay, right, completely superseded all that anxiousness that we had felt for, for those seven to, to eight months, right? The, the delivery was difficult for Lauren, even with the epidural. It was, it was a long process. We had family that came to the hospital and then had to leave because it was taking so long. AJ just didn't want to come out, right? But holding AJ, it was, man, like we would do that all again for the joy that we're feeling in, in, a, in a moment, right? Like it didn't take five years for us to say, you know what? AJ was worth it, right? Like, like in the first few moments you're holding him and you're like, that, that was all worth it, right? With Abram, it was completely different because the pregnancy was, was fine and good, uh, no, no questions or concerns. Um, Abram came so quickly. We, we were anticipating um, her having to be induced. And so we were kind of waiting to the last minute because when, when we get pregnant, I try to figure out how we can save as much money in the pregnancy, right? Like I want to spend as little time at the hospital. I want them to bill me as little as possible. So I told Lauren, I said, we're not going in early. You're going to be induced at this time. I realized that contractions are starting, but hey, we're already scheduled for this time, right? And, and we, we almost had Abram in the car that's sitting in the parking lot. Um, and I've never heard Lauren scream like she screamed in that car ride to the point that it caused me to not even know where we were going. And I got lost on a place that I knew exactly where to go. Right. And so I had to U-turn in the middle of the road and, you know, but again, all that anxiety that I was feeling leading up to that birth, because I felt like I was responsible. I might be responsible for delivering my son. Man, in a moment's notice, it was like, man, all that was worth it. Right. And then uh, with Mal, so we didn't have an epidural that time. And so there was a lot of pain for Lauren because she was prior experience. She had the epidural. When, when Mally's born, Lauren decides to not have the epidural because the experience was so much better. But, but Mally didn't come as quickly, right? And so that process began to linger longer and longer and just having to stand by my wife and see the pain and anguish that she was going through in that childbirth, difficult, right? Holding Mally immediately makes it all worth it. And then in between Mally and Apollos, we have two miscarriages that completely compound the experience that we had with Apollos in that pregnancy, right? Just the, the grief and the sorrow that we experienced with, with losing two children. And, and 
obviously my views on the sanctity of life and, and when, uh, when life begins shapes my feelings about our miscarriages, right? And, and AJ is always quick to remind us that um, we don't just have four kids, we have six kids, right? And, but when Apollos, when we got pregnant with Apollos, there was, there was all these emotions as well about will, will we carry this baby all the way, right? And so even in that pregnancy, kind of similar to AJ's, it was like, we should be extremely excited, but we're extremely anxious every day. Every day of that nine months just felt like so, such anguish, right? Just not knowing what God's will was going to be. But again, holding him, it, it made all of it worth it, right? And so this illustration resonates with me because I've lived it in a lot of different ways. And I know that the sorrow is difficult. And, and, and for some, the sorrow may never turn to joy in this life, right? Some of you experience, have experienced similar situations and, and, and don't have the joy yet to say, hey, that was all worth it. And it may not come in this life. Jesus is in no way assuring that the sorrow always turns to joy in this life alone. What he is saying through this illustration is that I believe when Jesus comes back, on a far grander scale than when you're holding your child after nine months of pregnancy and after the delivery process, when Jesus comes back, it is going to make everything that we have experienced in this life worth it to be standing with him, right? Every sin that we have battled, every temptation that we have fought, every heartache we have experienced, every trial and difficulty that we have weathered and fallen in, every one of those experiences— to stand in the presence of Jesus is going to make everything absolutely worth it. And, and here's why, because it's going to be forgettable, right? In the same way that a woman forgets much of what she went through in that delivery process to where she can even talk again about having a baby after going through the trauma that she goes through physically to birth that child, our sorrow too is going to be forgettable in that way. <coughs> that is going to turn into unimaginable joy. That's such a great, unbelievable promise that Jesus gives to us here. <coughs> but it's temporary. But not only is it for a little while, it is forgettable. It is forgettable. Number three, find your lasting joy in the coming of Christ. Find your lasting joy in the coming of Christ. So he's telling them about this little while process that, hey, sorrow's coming, don't fall away when it comes, right? Endure it, trust that it's going to turn to joy. He says, you're gonna weep, you're gonna lament, the world's gonna rejoice around you, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And then after this illustration of the, of the childbearing, he says in verse 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. No one will take your joy from you. For our kids, the good times that will come when Jesus returns will last forever, will last forever. So finding our lasting joy in the coming of Christ, our joy is to be grounded in a certain future with Christ. If our joy is tied to anything in this world, it is, it is possibly gonna be lost, right? Like if we find joy in, in any of our circumstances in this world alone, we run the risk of losing our joy. We struggle oftentimes to find joy in the midst of abundance and ease. 
Whereas the disciples are being told to find joy in the midst of poverty and affliction and that they can expect to find it. But too often we allow our joy to be affected by the ever-changing circumstances around us. Think about that. For us to even have to fight for joy uh, seems silly if we pause and think about the abundance and ease that we enjoy on a daily basis. Especially in light of what the disciples were being promised here, right? They're going to be kicked out of the synagogue. They're going to be afflicted. They're going to be punished. They're going to be abused. They're going to be hated. Most of us go through our life on a daily basis and we don't get that, right? We don't get that type of response. And yet, to the extreme response, Jesus is saying, you should be finding joy in that. We too need to recognize that if our joy is grounded in a certain future with Christ, we can find joy even in the midst of our ever-changing circumstances. Number two, our joy cannot be taken now if it is rooted in the future. We won't lose our joy today if our joy is based about something in the future. Our joy can't be taken because of what it is rooted in. So let's think about what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I want your joy, your contentment, your satisfaction to be rooted in the fact that I'm coming again. And when I come again, death ends, right? And eternity begins and and sin is removed and relationships are healed. Reunions occur, right? Think about all the things that we are promised on that day when Jesus comes back. I was was sitting at at McDonald's studying this morning and just thinking about how much of what is difficult about life is the relationships that we have with each other, right? Think about the the hurt feelings that we oftentimes have to overcome, whether that's between spouses, with kids, friends, coworkers, things that are misunderstood, things that are perceived incorrectly, right? Much of what is difficult about life is the fact that we are sinful people, and we react sinfully, and, and there's, a, there's a lack of trust sometimes because we all know that we're sinful, right? Imagine a, a state of being where, where we can enjoy friendships, close-knit friendships, where, where trust isn't questioned, where, where sin isn't worried about, right? To just know that each other has each other's best interest at heart, and that there's untainted love that exists between between those two individuals. Like that's what we are expecting when Jesus comes back. This, this unbelievable community that's, that's, that's grounded in, in our community with him, right? Where death is never experienced again. There's never a prayer request offered for a sickness again, right? These are the things that Jesus is saying, find your joy in something that is to come in the future, not in something that you're trying to create right here. Joy in earthly things, sex, money, work, hobbies, relationships, health. All those things can change in a moment's notice and be taken from us. And if our joy is rooted in that, it's gone, right? It's affected, it decreases. One one of the commentators, I think it's one of the books that I've recommended to some of you that are kind of reading along and studying along will recognize this illustration. Commentator says it's like, if you put your joy in those type of things, it's like putting your joy in a piggy bank sticking it in a high crime area at night with a note that says the contents of this piggy bank have really valuable things in it and you leave a hammer next to the piggy bank, right? You're going to lose the value of whatever's in that piggy bank, right? Somebody, somebody in that area at night in a high crime area is going to smash that piggy bank and take whatever is in it. He says that's the equivalent of us putting our joy in things here, 
He says on the flip side, to put our joy in the return of Christ and what comes with that is the equivalent of putting our joy in Fort Knox and Satan being given a spoon. And for us to, to even think about him being able to touch that is inconceivable, right? Like, like there's no possibility of you doing any damage to my joy. It's being preserved at Fort Knox and all you have is a spoon, right? So placing our joy in something that is so certain that Jesus is coming back, death will be defeated, relationships will be restored, reunions will occur, those that we've had to separate from because of sin and death, to know that Jesus is bringing them with him and will enjoy them for eternity too. Much to be joyful for if we can keep our focus on the things to come. Christ is really the ultimate example of how to endure sorrow for the sake of future joy. Let me give you two passages to consider here. Isaiah chapter 53, back in the Old Testament, describes Jesus in relationship to sorrow. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. He bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Jesus is described as a man who experienced earthly sorrows, and he did, right? If we learned anything from the book of Hebrews in our study there, um, I guess a year plus ago now, is that Jesus took on human flesh so that he could experience what humans experience so that he can be our high priest, right? So he bore human sorrows, right? His feelings were hurt. His heart was heavy with Judas betraying him, with Peter denying him, with what's going to come, the disciples scattering, right? He, he bore the human side of that. But what we see in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 10 Verse 37, oh, sorry, Hebrews 12, verse 2. We'll start in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, right? The author of Hebrews is, is giving us this picture of do what you need to do, get rid of the things that, that are holding you back, endure, and, and keep moving forward. Looking to Jesus, verse 2, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I mean, what got, what got Jesus even through his own personal sorrows that he was experiencing? It was the, the coming joy that he knew lay on the other side, right? To, to borrow the image that he used, it's, it's, it's how a woman can even endure the, the delivery process, knowing there is joy on the other side of this pain. Right? There is joy on the other side of this pain. Jesus endures the cross, bears the shame, conquers the sorrows because of this joy that's set before him that's on the other side of the cross. That's what's being given to us in John chapter 16. To the disciples, he says that we too are to put our faith and joy in something beyond this life, in something that is to come. Find your lasting joy in the coming of Christ, not the things that change so quickly in this world. Number four, pray intentionally to increase your joy. We've been talking about prayer some over the last couple of weeks and, and things that Jesus has to say about it. He comes back to this topic in verse 23. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy 
may be full. Now, what's he talking about here? Well, remember, he is, he is helping them understand what life after the ascension looks like. What have they been doing for the last three years? Well, they haven't been praying to God in the name of Jesus. They've been talking to Jesus, right? They've, they've had the benefit of being right next to Jesus. Prior to their interaction with Jesus, they have prayed to the Father, but really haven't even understood how to pray in the way that he's describing here, and that's in the name of Jesus, right? So he is, he is basically educating them on how to pray now that he is leaving, how to talk to, to the Father now that he won't be here. For our kids, we can pray for God to help us through bad times. Pray intentionally to increase your joy. Number one, prayer is to be done in the name of Jesus to accomplish his mission and not our comfort. Here's, here's what I would have to say to a young believer if we were talking about prayer from this passage, is that we as believers have to understand that prayer and certainly praying in the name of Jesus is not a way for us to get our wish list accomplished, right? It's, it's not that we get to add the name of Jesus at the end of our prayer as though it's some type of magical mantra that assures us that our request will be given to us. What it does mean to pray in Jesus' name, whether you include it in your prayer or not, what it means to pray in Jesus' name is to essentially pray for the things that he would pray for, right? It's to pray in line with the type of things that Jesus has requested that we pray for, the things that he has revealed. And they are far more based on his mission to sanctify us and to grow his kingdom than to relish us with further comfort, right? But, but, but we, don't, we don't think that way a lot of times. I'm guilty of it as well. Too often, we, we filter our prayers and our requests through the comfort that we desire, right? We want, we want sorrow removed. We want affliction taken away. Um, we want to get back to the way things were when we, when we were okay with things, right? And, and rarely do we think to pray in the midst of difficulty for Christ's mission to be accomplished we're more concerned about our mission being accomplished and that's for the bad stuff to go away. And what Jesus, I think, is wanting us to understand here is that it's not about our comfort. If we will pray in line with his will, if we will pray with a mindset for his mission, we'll we'll have anything that we ask for because it's the things that we have been told to ask for, right? So rather than having assurance that if I pray for healing for this person, that healing will take place. Like we're not given that, we're not promised that, right? But we can pray confidently for the gospel to go forth in the midst of someone's sickness, right? We can pray for sanctification to occur in the midst of sickness and be assured that that will absolutely be answered. I have no reason to believe that prayers like that won't be answered because Jesus promises that when we ask like that, that we can be assured of answers to come because they're in line with his will. They're in Jesus's name. They are consistent with his mission. And when we pray like that, and when we see answered prayers, it keeps our focus right and our joy full. You've probably felt this before, where you've, you've prayed intentionally. You've prayed in line with Christ's will, as revealed in his word, seen those answers come, well, then it results in an in a, in a outflowing of joy in our own life, right? We, we talked previously in, in, in John where 
answered prayers help to reassure us even of our salvation, right? Because we know, hey, I'm talking to my father and he's listening. Like we do have a relationship. I'm seeing him actively working in my life, right? That's gonna increase our joy. It's gonna increase our joy as we pray these prayers. We see our father answer these prayers. Jesus says, you do this, ask and you'll receive and your joy will be made full. We pray in the name of Jesus to accomplish his mission and not our comfort. And that's a subtle shift, really, even in the the requests that we're already making. For a lot of us, it's not that we need to change the things that we're requesting. We need to tweak our perspective about what we're asking in regards to those requests. Answered prayer keeps our focus right and our joy full. And then lastly, number five, anticipate failures, but expect victory. This all sounds real well and good. Remember sorrow is temporary, persevere. Remembering that your sorrow is forgettable. It's temporary, it's a little while. Joy's coming, right? Sorrow's gonna be turned to joy, much like what happens in childbearing. We find our lasting joy in the coming of Christ. It's a type of joy that can't be taken from us. It can't be stolen from us. And if we'll pray intentionally in line with Jesus's will, our our joy will reach its fullest extent. Jesus gives the same teaching to his disciples, right? And, And they respond. He says in verse 25, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. That certainly happens after resurrection, after ascension, the Holy Spirit comes, he leads them into deeper truth, right? So things become more and more clear for the disciples after Jesus departs. Verse 26, in that day you will ask in my name and I do not say uh, to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, I've come into the world and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. So he even reassures them about their relationship that they enjoy with the Father, that they are loved by him, um, as they are faithful to love Jesus, like they see that, you kind of see that playing out there in that passage. And then verse 29, his disciples said, ah, now you're speaking plainly. You're not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Well, what do we see right here? Well, we see maturity happening. We see their faith growing. We see realization setting in. They are not as confused as they were. They're comprehending and and they're responding in belief. This is exactly what we would want here. But then Jesus follows this up and says, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone for the Father is with me. Number one here, growing faith does not exempt us from daily failures. The disciples' faith is growing, but Jesus reminds them or, or informs them maybe that hey, you're about to fall off the wagon here in a, in a, in a little bit, right? We're hours away from the shepherd being struck and the sheep scattering, right? We're hours away. So it's great that you're responding with this belief, but don't, don't tune me out and think that you've mastered what I've just said here, right? Like don't, don't think that you're now, you're now where you need to be based off of what I've just instructed you with. He says, you're, you're about to need this information. You're about to need this truth and you're about to not listen, right? You're, you're, you're saying that you believe, but you're about to demonstrate that there's, there's still much work to be done because you're about to run, run scared, right? He predicts what's about to happen, that they are going to abandon him in the garden when the arrest takes place. It's a reminder to us that as we're growing, 
right? You may, you may be sitting weekly right now here at our church feeling like, man, I am growing, I am learning, I am trusting more and more. Don't be surprised when daily failures continue to happen, right? They, they will. Tribulation and temptation are still going to cause us to stumble at times. You can hear a, a, a sermon all about joy and all of it being rested in Jesus' second coming, and then for some of us, something's going to happen this week, and it's going to zap our joy, right? We're gonna, we're, something's going to happen at work, something's going to happen at home, and, and our immediate response is going to not be what it should be. And it's going to be like, how does that happen? Like, I mean, Adam just talked for almost an hour on this. Like, like how do I forget so quickly and, and not apply the things that I just learned, right? Because I, I believed it on Sunday. I, I fully affirm what he's saying. And then two days later, it's like, where, 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 what happened? Where did that stuff go, right? It happens with the disciples too. Don't grow discouraged with daily failures when growing faith is still happening. There'll still be times where we stumble. Number two, Christ's work does guarantee us peace and victory, though. Because even when he talks about their failures, what does he say in verse 33? I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Right? Notice he doesn't say, I've said these things to you to, to discourage you. Right? To let you know, hey, you're about to, you're about to, to, to forget everything I just said. He even tells them about their coming failures so that when they happen, they can still enjoy a level of peace. Why? Because you back up and you realize, hey, Father loves me. I love Jesus, right? That, that relationship has been reconciled. His work and our faith has produced peace with God. It makes the joy even possible. But he goes on to say in, in, the, in the last part of 33, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Our assured victory, our assured perseverance is really not tied to our best efforts, right? It's, it's tied to the fact that Christ has already overcome a joy-stealing world, right? Christ's joy wasn't taken from him. Despite all the sorrows, he maintained the proper perspective. So when we talk about his life, his righteousness, like we're talking in depth here, Jesus does what we can't. Right? And so our salvation is never based on our merit. It's always based on what Jesus has already accomplished for us. And so he reminds them, you have peace, even though you're going to fail here in a minute. You have peace, and you can rest in that peace because in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Which I think ties in beautifully with what it said in Romans 8, Romans chapter 8, verse 37. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors, not on our own, but through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord." Right? If we're secure in Christ because of his work and we enjoy peace with God, even in our failures, that peace isn't shaken. Right? Nothing can separate us from his love. We are more than conquerors through him. Christ overcame this joy-stealing world, empowering us to do the same. Even when he was betrayed and persecuted, it did not rob him of his joy. One other point that I think kind of stands out, doesn't necessarily fit with the points I've been making, but I wanted to draw your attention to it. Uh, back in John chapter 16, 
Verse 32, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home, will leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I think that's a, a good reminder to those of us that maybe at times struggle with loneliness. Um, maybe we struggle at times with connectedness, with, with friendships. Um, maybe we, we've even experienced betrayal and loss of relationships. Sometimes that, that puts us in a downward spiral and Jesus even says here, look, I'm about to lose everybody that I hold dear to me. Everybody's going to abandon me, but I'm not alone for the Father's with me. So I think it's a good reminder to us that um, our, our loneliness is addressed best in our relationship with our Father, right? Um, lack of relationships that we may feel like we enjoy right now is solved in our relationship with our Father. All right, two summary thoughts that I want to leave you with, and then we'll close up. And really, it's more just implications from this text. Number one, all these warnings that we've been seeing over the past several weeks and the later fulfillments of those persecutions. So you got warnings, and then you've got fulfillment, and then you couple that with the disciples' joyful perseverance, and it just makes the resurrection further believable to me. In a day, and, I, and I wanted to mention this because in a day and age when people continue to walk away from the faith, because their circumstances shift, their joy decreases, and they begin to believe that the, the childbearing part is not worth the child in the end. And they say, you know what? I'm out. I'm going to walk away. Right? A, a woman doesn't really have that option when she's in the midst of, of labor. Right? But, but if given the option, it may be tempting to just say, you know what? I'm, I'm just done with this. Right? Some people do that following Christ. They say, you know what? It, it's just not worth it anymore. But these disciples were warned, and then they saw it fulfilled, right? We've, we've, we've alluded to some passages in Acts where they were kicked out of the synagogue, just like Jesus said. They were, they were flogged and afflicted and persecuted, just like Jesus said. They are killed, just like Jesus said. What changes, though, between them being scattered here in just a few hours to not being scattered later, right? Same teaching, and then they get a chance to apply it, and they're, boom, they're, they're scattered everywhere. They, 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 I believe it, but not right now. The only thing that changes is the resurrection, that Jesus came back from the dead, and it affirmed all these promises that he was making, right? I'm coming back for you. When I do, these are all the things that you'll enjoy. All that's good in theory. And then you see him die on the cross, and you're like, man, that sounded good, but it's not reality. And then when he comes back from the dead, everything changes for these people, right? Everything changes, and now they're completely bought into that teaching, and they can be beaten, like we see in Acts chapter 5, and they can walk away from it, it says, with joy, right? With joy. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 8, this isn't one of the um, disciples listening here. It's actually uh, one of his female followers, but in Matthew 28, 8, it says that when she sees the resurrected Jesus, she leaves his presence. And the, the literal translation would be not just with joy, but with mega joy, mega joy. Like, like to the fullest, the resurrection produces this unbelievable joy because what does it do? It validates everything that Jesus has said. It validates all of it, right? So to me, as we study this, don't lose sight of the fact that these guys have to really bear this out over the coming years, and they stay joyful, they persevere to the end, which to me just further affirms the resurrection. And then number two, 
I personally, and I want this for you too, I want us to start seeing all the sorrows of this life through the lens of pregnancy with coming joy, right? As we bear sorrow in this life, I want us to view it as though that sorrow is pregnant with coming joy for us, right? That, that, that advantageous perspective that, that God would not bring us into sorrow if there wasn't some type of advantage for us on the other side, right? He says, I'm leaving, but the Holy Spirit's coming, right? That's how he operates. That's how he works. He brings us through sorrow with joy on the other side. In Isaiah chapter 35, a passage that talks about restoration that comes with with the coming Lord, it says, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Same principle here. Sorrow is, is fleeing away. Joy is coming. And then in Romans chapter 8, a real familiar passage to us in the, in the same type of context as that birthing analogy in verse 22 For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for we who hope for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul talking about this picture that we're in this stage of life right now where we're, we're, we're enduring the childbearing pains and we're longing for the joy that comes on the other side. He says, keep bearing with it. Keep bearing with it because that joy is to come. For our application this week, I want you to seek to pray prayers this week that are focused on his mission rather than your comfort, right? So as we think about our joy, what does he say? pray and experience answered prayers so that your joy reaches its fullest, right? So we want to do that this week. And the way that we have assurance of answered prayers is that we pray prayers that are aligned with his mission, not so much our comfort. We're not promised that our comfort prayers will be answered. We are promised that that the prayers that are aligned with his mission will be. So we can be strategic this week and pray prayers that are aligned with his mission and know that he will answer those. For our family worship questions this week, what types of things does the world find joy in And where is a Christian told to find his or her joy? So two points of discussion there to have with your families this week. And then number two, how can we have joy even when things are bad in our life? Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the reminders that we've seen in your word today. Um, Lord, we thank you that you have warned us in advance that bad times are coming, that difficulties will be experienced, that sorrow will find its way into our life. But God, we thank you that you went ahead and communicated as well that that stuff's temporary. It's for a little while. And that the joy that comes on the other side supersedes all of it. It makes it all worth it. And God, I know sometimes it's hard in our finite minds to think about the future that is to come because we are so conditioned to think about the here and now. God, help us to look past our current circumstances, our current health needs, our current frustrations at work, our current um, difficulties that we're having within relationships. 
trials and difficulties that have yet to come into our life that are looming even this week, maybe. God, help us to look past those things as our source of joy. And instead, Father, help us to keep our minds set on heavenly things, things that are to come, the joy that's coming with, with Christ's return. God, help us to believe that when our joy is, is, is focused there, our joy can't be taken from us. God, help us to endure whatever it is that comes this week. And, and even when we experience failure, God, help us to bounce back quickly, knowing that, that we enjoy peace with God because of the work of Christ, not because of our daily success. God, help us to always remember that, that, that our relationship with you is not tied to our merit. It is tied to the fact that Jesus overcame this world. And that tribulation is going to be hard on us at times, and we're going to respond um, with a lack of faith at times. But God, I pray that that would cause us to rejoice even more in the work of Christ, knowing that, that we still enjoy peace with you. Father, grow us in our faith. I pray that you would increase our joy this week, even through our prayer life. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.